Good morning, church. Let me encourage you to open up your copy of God's Word to Titus 1. Titus 1, verses 10 through 16 is our text for this morning. And it has been a couple weeks since we've been in the book of Titus, so I want to do a little bit of review. We're walking through the book of Titus to answer this question. What does it look like to both be and live as the church in today's broken society? We understand that the book of Titus was written by Paul to Titus, his son in the faith, to instruct him how to put what remained in order in the church of Crete. In the book of Titus, what we find is a small handbook on ecclesiology. What is ecclesiology? Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And we're looking at these short three chapters over a short two months to understand what does it mean to be church? What does it mean to be church now in today's world? Just like it meant for Paul and Titus to do church in the world 2,000 years ago. Three weeks, Clay walked us through Titus 1, 1 through 4. And he showed us how godly living as steered by sound doctrine is needed for effective ministry. If we seek to be the church in Louisville in the 21st century, we need to live godly lives in this present age as based on scripture. Two weeks ago, Clay brought us through Titus 1 verses 5 through 9 to show that qualified leadership as defined by scripture is also needed for effective ministry. If we seek to do church just as Paul and Titus did church 2,000 years ago, so we need pastors to lead us and to guide us and to shepherd us which we're going to look more at today as we look at our response to false teachers. Before we get ahead of ourselves, let us stand for the reading of God's word. Read with me Titus 1, verses 10 through 16. This is written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it says this. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this amazing opportunity that we have once again to look at your word. Thank you for Paul, a faithful minister who you empowered to teach Titus how to plant the church of Crete and how to grow the church of Crete. And we thank you for your spirit who enabled him and now enables us to look at the truth of your word. Lord, before I begin this morning, Lord, I want to pray for two things. Lord, firstly for me. Lord, I pray that you would guard me from pride and that you would guard me from error. Lord, I pray that you would remind me this morning that I am a mere vessel for your truth and nothing more. Lord, I pray that you would show me this morning that the words that I have prepared by the power of your spirit are not my words, Lord. They are yours. Lord, secondly, I want to pray for this congregation this morning. 
Lord, as we sit under the preaching of your word together, Lord, I pray that you would touch us at our greatest point of need. As my pastor would pray as I was growing up, Lord, I pray that you would convict us exactly where we need it because you know our hearts, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us this morning. Lord, and if anybody in this room does not know you, Lord, I pray that they would be convicted this morning, that they would repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to start out with a bold claim. And that bold claim is this, is that false teachers might not yet exist at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. But if we are not careful, they soon will. False teachers might not yet exist at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. But if we are not careful, they soon will. Why do I say that? Well, we're a small congregation, right? If everybody shows up, including the kids, maybe 60 people-ish, somewhere in there, praise the Lord for that, right? That's where God has us, and we ought to be faithful with the people that he has given us. But last time I checked, right, I'm not in the elder meetings. I don't know everything that's going on. I'm just the guest preacher. But nobody is outrightly preaching heresy in Sunday school, right? I don't see that. I hope you don't. That's not where we're at right now. Praise the Lord. But I want to make the bold claim that if we are not careful, false teachers will creep their way into this church. You ask me, why do I know that? Well, two reasons. Firstly, because false teachers, they exist in the world, right? We see this in the news. We see this in the media. Maybe even see this in our workplaces, right? And we'll talk about the specifics of that in a moment. But secondly, the Bible tells us that false teachers will creep their way into the church. We find that here in Titus 1. We find it in the book of 1 Timothy. We find it in the book of Acts. We find it all over Scripture that there are evil people that Satan uses to tear apart the community of God. And if we are not careful, they will creep in our church. So this morning, this is not going to be an entertaining sermon. If you want something entertaining, go into the lobby and watch Netflix. I am simply going to bring to you the truths of God's word. And our main point for this morning is this, is that responding to false teachers is needed for effective ministry. Responding to false teachers is needed for effective ministry. If we seek to be the church in a broken society, we need to respond to false teachers. So this morning I have three simple truths. The first truth is going to talk about the existence of false teachers, and the second two truths are going to tell us how to respond. So let's go ahead and dive in. In verse 10, our first truth for this morning is that false teachers exist, which is why we need pastors. False teachers exist, which is why we need pastors. Read with me once again verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Here in this first verse, we see how Paul is instructing Timothy, and he's telling him that there are already false teachers in his church, right? Luckily for us, I don't think we have any false teachers already in the church, but they were already present in the church of Crete 2,000 years ago. Paul describes what these false teachers looked like in the church of Crete in three ways. Firstly, he says that these false teachers, they were insubordinate, right? They did not listen to authority. Now, I don't need to describe to you guys what insubordination means, because most of you have children, right? If you weren't, or if you don't have children, you once were a child, right? You understand what it means to not listen to authority. I think the idea that Paul's getting at here is these false teachers, they did not listen to the authority of God's word, but they also didn't listen to the authority of the true pastors that were in that church, right? They simply did their own thing. 
Secondly, Paul says that these false teachers were empty talkers. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I have a couple friends in my life, none of you, not, nobody here, um, that might be described as empty talkers, right? They, they just don't know when to keep their mouth shut, right? You're in a social gathering, you're in a setting of multiple people, and they go, oh man, let me share this awesome story. And, you know, 16 minutes later, when they finally finish, you're like, why did you tell that story? Nobody cares, right? There's a lot of words, but there's no constructive content, right? That's what these false teachers did. They taught a lot, they spoke a lot, but nothing of what they said was actually helpful, was actually true. Thirdly, Paul describes these false teachers as deceivers, right? Those who persuaded for selfish gain. In my personal Bible study, I'm walking through the book of Genesis, and I, I really loved reading this past week the story of Jacob, right? Because Jacob is known as the great deceiver, right? He, he conned his, his brother into selling him his birthright, and he even conned his father into getting the blessing of the firstborn, right? And throughout all of Scripture, we see these deceivers, right? And these false t teachers were, were characterized in the same way. They deceived others for their own selfish gain. They were insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. But Paul says, furthermore, that these false teachers in the church of Crete were especially those of the circumcision party. Now, we don't know exactly what the circumcision party was, but based on other scriptures and Acts and even in Philippians, we come to believe that this circumcision party was a pharisaical sect of Jews that said that you needed to be circumcised and follow other things of the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And I, I find this very interesting because what this circumcision party taught is, is that yes, they, they probably would say that yes, Jesus is important, his life, his death, and resurrection is important, but you also need circumcision. You also need these ceremonial things to be saved. It was Jesus plus something else merited you for salvation. And I find that very interesting because I think there's a lot of false teachings today that that also proclaimed that, yes, Jesus was great, but you need something else, right? But this morning, I want to I argue that the false teachers of Paul's, Paul's day are still the false teachers of our day, right? They might look a little different. They might be recontextualized in an American culture, but false teachers existed in the church long ago, and false teachers still exist in the church today. So I want to define what is a false teacher for us, and I've described it like this. If you've got a pen, this is a great thing to write down. A false teacher is someone who actively and intentionally teaches that which is contrary to the primary doctrines of Scripture. A false teacher is one who actively and intentionally teaches that which is contrary to the primary doctrines of Scripture. So notice a couple things in this definition. Firstly, false teachers are those who actively and intentionally teach things, right? We're not talking about, you know, these new believers who are still getting their theology figured out who might say something wrong every once in a while, right? I say something wrong every once in a while, right? But it's not active and intentional. I'm not trying to tear the church apart, right? But secondly, look at these false teachers, those who, who preach what is contrary to the primary doctrines of Scripture, right? And I want to bring us on a little side note here and talk about this thing called theological triage. Theological triage. Um, Dr. Moeller came out with an article several years ago about this, and I think it's just very, very helpful as we look at the church and biblical doctrines today. So I have a little table up here. I don't know if it's going to be able to be read. Um, you can go ahead and put it up there, all of it. Um, 
So it's a little small. If you want it later, I can go ahead and give it to you. So the idea of theological triage is that every doctrine is significant, right? Everything in the Bible is significant and important and true, but there are different levels of what Moeller calls in his article theological urgency, right? So the idea behind triage, it's a medical term, right? So you get a bunch of people flooding into the emergency room, right? Who do you deal with first? They're all hurt, they are all in need of help, but one guy's got a scraped knee and one guy's got a gunshot wound, right? So we need to triage these patients, we need to order these patients at their levels of urgency. And I think in Moeller, in his article, he, he does a faithful job at giving us three separate tiers of, of doctrines, right? They're all important, but there's different levels of urgency. So firstly, we have these primary doctrines, right? We have these salvation or gospel issues, right? The concept, I don't know if you guys can read that, is that you're not a Christian without these things, right? If you deny the Trinity, if you deny the incarnation, the, the life, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, these things make you not a Christian. These are the fundamental things that we believe in, the things that we, in other terms, the hills that we would die on, right? But secondly, we have our, our secondary doctrines. These are denominational issues, right? If you don't believe in these things, in our context would say you're not a Baptist, right? The big one for us is believer's baptism, right? We believe that those who are baptized should be believers, and we baptize them by full water immersion. There are other denominations that don't believe that, right? But we don't say that they're not Christians. We just say that they're not Baptists, right? We believe that baptism is important. This is a theological doctrine that is significant. There's a different level of urgency here. Then we have these tertiary doctrines, which consist of everything else, right? These things that don't divide up the fellowship of believers, right? The common example of this is the way we order our eschatology, right? We all believe that Jesus is coming again, but the events that surround that we might have different opinions on. But just because me and Jeff might disagree on exactly how that's all going to be laid out, we can still fellowship in the church together. Another uh, great example of this is our opinion of our NFL football teams. Um, I was... I was bold, and I put this in the PowerPoint, um, but I have been humbled. So I was, going, I was going to tell you all that you all just need to be more sanctified and realize that the Packers are the best NFL football team in the league, um, but even though you disagree with me, we can still fellowship together, um, but I have thus been humbled, and the Lord has proven me wrong. Um, and I am not afraid to admit that, right? But that's a tertiary doctrine, right? Even though one might root for Georgia, one might root for Alabama, one might root for Tennessee, right? I don't even know what I just said. I'm probably going to get in trouble now, right? But that doesn't matter, right? And that's not a theological issue. Why do I bring that all up? Is that false teachers are those who preach against these primary doctrines, these first-tier things, right? Presbyterians don't agree with us on baptism, but they are not false teachers. They are our friends, right? We love them, and we do gospel ministry with them. But false teachers are those who tear the church apart at their fundamental belief level, Right? So what does that look like in our day? I think there's a lot of false teachers out there, but I've collected five of them just to make this a little bit more practical for us, right? And I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer because I'm not saying that anybody in any of these um, false teachings groups, I'm not saying that there might not be Christians dispersed within them, right? I pray to the Lord that in spite of these false gospels that are being taught, there are those who do believe in Christ based on their own reasoning of scripture. But my point in bringing these five belief systems or false gospels, if you will, up is that we need to be aware as a church of what are these false teachings that are creeping in, 
So there's, there's five of them. There's many more, but there's five of them that I'm going to list. Firstly, this prosperity gospel idea, right? And we talk about this a lot. This is the one we always go to. But the idea that the sole purpose for Jesus' coming was to make people happy, wealthy, and healthy, right? Once again, I sure hope that there are those who um, are under the influence of the prosperity gospel, that they are truly saved. But at its fundamental level, the prosperity gospel, I would argue, teaches something against the primary doctrines of Scripture. Because Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost, Secondly, um, Jehovah's Witness, um, denying uh, the full deity of, of Jesus Christ, right? This is an anti-Trinitarian belief that teaches a false gospel. Thirdly, and once again, I want to be careful here, um, but the fundamental teachings of Roman Catholicism, I think, go directly against um, what we teach here at Christ Fellowship Church that accords to Scripture. Right? And once again, I pray that there are those in the Roman Catholic Church who believe in the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that are saved. Um, but if you, at least every Roman Catholic who I've ever talked to, it's Jesus plus something else saves you. Right? Yes, Jesus is important, but you also have to confess to a priest. You have to go to a mass. You merit your own salvation. But we believe here at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church that the Bible says that we are justified by faith, by grace alone. And we hold that as a very important teaching. Fourthly, the idea of universalism, right? That everybody's saved, that it doesn't matter what belief system you fall into because we're all going to the same place. I think that an offshoot of this, or maybe it's the same thing, is this idea of mountaintop theology, right? I don't know if you guys have heard that term before, but that's the idea that everybody is standing at the base of the same mountain and we're all working our way to the same God. Right? That Christians are over here, Catholics are over here, Muslims are over here, and Buddhists are on the other side, and we're all just working our way to God. Right? This, is, this is when you evangelize to somebody, and they say, yeah, Jesus is great for you, but that's just not for me. I'm going to get to God my own way. That is a false teaching. Because John 14, 6 says, or Jesus said, right, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That nobody gets to the Father except through me. And we proclaim that boldly, <laughs> without apology here at Christ Fellowship. Fourthly, uh, sorry, fifthly, lastly, theological liberalism. Theological liberalism. The idea that we can take biblical terms and define them in unbiblical ways, right? And I, I think in a good example of this that I've heard of is when you hear somebody say, I'm a Christian, but I'm gay, right? Well, you're redefining what Christian means. Because Paul is very clear in Scripture. The whole Bible is very clear that homosexuality is a sinful practice. Right? Theological liberals, they redefine what inerrancy means so that the Bible is something that you can pick and choose from, but they still call themselves Christians. It's a false teaching, right? So prosperity gospel, Jehovah's Witness, Roman Catholicism, universalism, theological liberalism, these are all false teachings of our day that we need to be aware of. But what's the application here, right? This first point, false teachers exist. We've looked at that. We've looked at what that means in our day. What's the application? We need pastors. That's the context. Read with me verse 9. He, which is the elder, right? And Paul, or sorry, Clay taught on this two weeks ago, the words of Paul. He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10, for or because there are many who are insubordinate. We, we miss this because we have to divide the text somewhere. Right, But the entirety of my sermon is grounding what Paul preached on two weeks ago. 
right? The reason why we need pastors is because false teachers exist, right? No, yes, there are other reasons why we need pastors, right? We need them to shepherd us and to care for us and to guide us. But most importantly here this morning, pastors guard us from error. We need pastors. And I'm passionate about this. I have a friend from back at home. He is a faithful Christian, and I fully believe that he is saved. But I met him over the summer, and we were just having these discussions. And I go, well, awesome, you're a Christian. What church do you go to? And he goes, you know, me and my family, um, we just we haven't found a church that we fully vibe with in our county. So we just, we just stay at home on Sundays and do our own thing. And listen, I am not against house churches. I am not against planting churches and homes. I think that's how this church started, right? Praise the Lord for that. But what I am against is people saying, I don't need the church. I don't need pastors. We're going to do our own thing. You need pastors. You need Jeff. You need Clay. You need Doug to help guard you from the false teachers in this world. And we need to realize that. First point, false teachers exist, which is why we need pastors. Our second point for this morning is that false teachers cause disruption, which is why we must silence them. This is found in verses 11 through the first part of verse 13. Paul continues, he says, They, these false teachers, they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. What Paul is communicating here to his beloved son in the faith, Titus, that these false teachers need to be dealt with. He uses the literal word silence, which, which in the Greek, it's an idiom here that, that actually means to muzzle, right? Picture a dog with that little, like, the little bark collar. Is that what it's called? I don't have dogs, right? A little bark collar, so it can't, can't bark, can't whine, can't do anything, right? That's, that's the literal idea here. The, these false teachers, they need to be muzzled so that they cannot influence the doctrine of the church. Well, how do we do that? How do we silence false teachers? I was listening to a, a sermon by a pastor, and he had these three ways, and I thought they were pretty good, um, so I just kind of put them in my own terms here. But firstly, we silence false teachers by not giving them a platform to speak from. If someone comes into this church and tries to preach a false gospel, we do not let them teach your kids. We do not let them stand up in this pulpit to preach. That's why I personally am honored that for whatever reason, the elders have entrusted me with the pulpit, right? It's a great honor to be up here, right? But we, we don't let anybody teach up here. We make sure that their doctrine accords with what we believe in based on sound scripture. Secondly, we logically refute their arguments, right? Notice I did not use the word argue, right? We logically refute their arguments, right? We show them with compassion based on sound doctrine and, as Martin Luther would say, logical reason, right, that what they are teaching is wrong. We do not sit back and let them teach. We confront them. Thirdly, we live godly lives. We live godly lives. 1 Peter 2.15 says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence, note the same idea here, the ignorance of foolish people. How do we silence false teachers? We continue to live the same exact lives we were living before they came into the picture, after they come into the picture. We show to them that their false teachings have, have no reign on our lives. 
that we will still continue to live our lives based on Scripture even though they try to deceive us. That is how we silence them. So that as they continue in their false teachings, they realize that there is no hope, they leave us, and they go somewhere else. Paul continues here and says that these false teachers in the church of Crete were not only upsetting the church, they were upsetting families, right? These false teachers crept their way into families through the church. I don't know exactly what this looks like. Paul, Paul doesn't describe exactly what this looked like, but I'm assuming one of two things was happening. I'm assuming that these false teachers probably came in and they were teaching somewhere and they were teaching something different than what other people were teaching. You had one pastor who was teaching right doctrine. You had a false teacher who was teaching false doctrine, right? So when your family gets home for lunch on a Saturday afternoon, right, uh, you discuss, well, what did you learn today? And, and there are contrary things, and this disrupted the household. A second way this might have happened, once again, this is all just conjecture, but I think this might have happened is, is, is maybe these false teachers were teaching things that were not ethical, right? Maybe they were teaching kids to be insubordinate just like they were. So you go home and, and these kids are trying to live out what they were taught, but what they were taught was evil, right? Just conjecture on how the, this, this, the households might have been disrupted in, in the church in Crete. But the point is this, is that these false teachers, they, they might start in the church, but they're also in the home. I'm not a father, but based on sound scripture, let me admonish fathers in the room. What false teachings are we letting into our households? Because false teachers, I don't think, come through the front door. Well, unless they're Jehovah's Witness, right? They don't come through the front door anymore, right? Come through here. Come through Netflix and YouTube. Fathers, do you know what your kids are watching? What false gospels are you letting your kids listen to, right? And I believe, like, once again, there is Christian liberty and there's a gray area here, and I'm not giving specifics. But I am saying, fathers, what, are you, what is influencing your household? What is possibly causing disruption, right? I once heard a teacher say, um, why would you let somebody in your home through your TV that you would not let in through your front door? Paul continues by describing these false teachers. They're doing what they're doing for shameful gain, right? There's a couple ways that you can diagnose false teachers. Um, I think a really good one that John gives us in his book of 1 John, right? You ask them, what do you do with Christ, right? If you don't believe in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're probably a false teacher. But another way that you can uh, diagnose a false teacher is what are their motives, right? If you say, oh, yeah, you can teach, but we're not going to pay you, and they back out, probably a false teacher, right? They're motivated by fame. They're motivated by money, right? They're willing to promote spiritual downfall of their victims for the reward of financial and social gain. But notice what Paul does in verse 12, and this is just fantastic. He says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This is fantastic. Paul does not even have to logically show himself how evil these people are. He just quotes one of them. Right? Because it takes a certain degree of awfulness to realize within your own tribe how awful you are. What do I mean by that? Well, I played soccer every year. Well, not every year. Uh, I probably started around the age of eight, nine, um, until my senior year in high school. I was never that good, but I always had a lot of fun. My freshman year of high school, we were awful. I mean, we maybe won one game, right? There's this thing called the mercy rule. Um, where if you if you get you know ten goals, uh, the other then the other team you just stop the game, and that was a thing that we actually had to use that. 
So at the beginning of the season, I'm from a small county in good old southern Wisconsin, so people talk. So at the beginning of the season, the, the, you know, the local schools, Elkhorn and Delavan and Burlington, they were all chatting, right? Because you show up to church and you got people from all the local high schools. And word starts going out that that Faith Christian School team, it's just awful, right? They're just awful, right? Well, I'm at church and I'm like, we'll show you. Yeah, you go to Elkhorn, but we're going to show you. Yeah, we'll be, at your, we'll be at your field next week. We'll show you. Right? We got about halfway through the season, and we're in our own home locker room, and we're looking around, and we're like, guys, we're awful. Right? We realize it ourselves. And that's what Paul is showing here. He goes, we don't have to use logical arguments. We can just quote them. We can just quote the Cretans themselves, because they know how awful they are. Well, what do the Cretans say about themselves? They say that they're liars. Right? This is easy. I don't have to describe for you what a liar is. Uh, but note real quick here. If you're always a liar... And you say that you're always a liar. Are you actually always a liar? I'll let you think about that one. All right, secondly, Cretans are saying that they themselves are evil beasts, right? To be called a beast or an animal in scripture is not a good thing. It's actually probably one of the worst things you can be called in that Jewish culture of the first century. One commentator puts it this way, that these Cretans sunk to the level of animals, that they were unrestrained in their brutality. I like the way that he puts that. Right? These false teachers were willing to do whatever they could do to tear the church apart. Thirdly, they were lazy gluttons, or the literal Greek here is lazy bellies. Right? It's an idiom for the fact that these false teachers were sitting around on their couches Monday through Saturday watching Netflix and doing nothing else. Right? On Sunday, on the Lord's Day, they would get up and teach false things, but the other days they were just lazy. They wanted profit, but they weren't desiring to do much personal effort to get there. And once again, I want to show that these false teachers in Paul's day are still in our church, not in this church, but in the church as a whole today. So it's the application here, right? Because these false teachers are causing disruption, because they threaten to destroy not only the church, but also our families, what do we do? We pray for our pastors in this task. You might be looking at this text this morning and going, well, this doesn't apply to me. Because Paul's writing to Titus, and Titus is to instruct the elders. This text does apply to you because you need to pray for Jeff and Clay and Doug as they stand up against the false teachers of this church that are coming into this church. Once again, I haven't been in the elder meetings, but I would guess that there are false teachers who have already tried to creep their way in here. And thank the Lord for Jeff, for Clay, and for Doug for guarding us against that. We pray for our pastors. Oh, church, arise. Put your armor on, right? We do that as a congregation. We live godly lives so that false teachers must be silenced. We also pray for our pastors. False teachers cause disruption, which is why we must silence them is my second point. Third point. False teachers exist. Sorry, that was my first point. Third point, false teachers need Jesus, which is why we must rebuke them. Third point, false teachers need Jesus, which is why we must rebuke them. Let us read the rest of the text, the second part of verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
What Paul says here is, is not only do we need to silence false teachers, not only do we need to take away their platform, we also need to rebuke them. We also need to confront them in their error in an appropriate way. Paul says to Titus in that original church of Crete to rebuke these false teachers. That term means to convict or to correct them, right? When I rebuke someone, I show them where they are in error. I correct the falseness, the falsehood of their ways. I convict them, right? I put them on trial for being guilty. That's what we are to do with false teachers. We don't let them roam and do their own thing. We confront them. But notice Paul's aim here. Rebuke them sharply. Why? That or so that or for the purpose of that they may be sound in the faith. This is where this text got me. Because notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, rebuke false teachers so that you might be proven right. He doesn't say, rebuke false teachers so that they can look like fools. He doesn't say, rebuke false teachers so that they might be destroyed, so that they might be crucified, so that they might die. And we do understand, maybe there is a place for that. Because the Lord does guard his church, and sometimes he does guard his church in ways that are destructive. But we don't start there. We start by praying for the salvation of those who are preaching a false gospel. And I think personally, and I think even in this church, sometimes some pride gets in. We think that we're better than them because we know what's true and they don't. And we forget that apart from our Lord Jesus Christ and his grace... We would be just like them. So we rebuke false teachers. Why? So that they may be sound. They may be, they may be good or healthy in the faith. Faith is, I believe, a content there, right? Sound in the teachings of Scripture. That they might be corrected. That they might both teach, but more, more importantly, believe what is right. That they might believe the gospel and so be one of us, right? So when false teachers creep their way into the church, yes, we kick them out if we have to, but we don't start there. We start with asking them, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And how can I lead you to them? Paul says, rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith so that they don't devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. Right? These two ideas here. Uh, firstly, these Jewish myths is kind of a reinstitution of that circumcision party idea. These, these Jewish myths that say you have to be circumcised to be saved, that you have to do, do actions right, to, to become saved. Secondly, Paul says that they might not devote themselves to, to, to these literally man-made commandments, right? These, these, these pharisaical self-atoning rituals, right? And just as a side application here, right? How many times do our own pharisaical self-atoning rituals think that we save us, right? Come to church every Sunday, right? That's our pharisaical self-atoning ritual, right? We ought to not devote ourselves to that because Jesus Christ saves us, not our own deeds, and in verses 15 and 16, Paul's going to do something interesting. And I really enjoyed this, uh, just studying this because it's interesting. Um, in verse 15, Paul is going to, to prove that these false teachers are, I would argue, condemning themselves by their character. And in verse 16, they are condemning themselves by their conduct. So let's walk through verse 15. This is um, a little bit of a difficult verse, and I'm hoping that I can 
do it justice as we look at what it means here. He says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. I think what Paul is getting at behind the scenes is he's talking about these ceremonial food laws, right? These things um, where in Mark 7, verse 19, um, Jesus has declared all foods clean, right? In the Old Testament, there were certain foods that were supposed to be eaten and were not supposed to be eaten. But here in Mark 7 and also in Acts with, with Peter's vision, we see that the Lord in the New Covenant has declared all foods clean. So what, what Paul, I believe, is, is teaching here, as one commentator puts it, is that true purity lies not in adherence to non-moral external rites, right, these ceremonial foods and these ceremonial observances, but in the inner purity of a regenerated heart, right? So what he's saying here is, to the pure, all things are pure. To those who are believers, to those who are Christians, right, all things are pure, right? That doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want, but that means what comes out of us, right, has been cleansed by our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Because our inner heart is clean, right? Christ says that out of, out of the heart come all of these cleanly things, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But if we are Christians, hopefully what we are saying and what we are doing is more on the righteous side of things, right? That doesn't mean that we are perfectly righteous, of course, but that does mean that our actions should be more, should be more sanctified. But, he, but he, he says the contrary is true as well. That to, to the defiled, right, the unbelieving, these false teachers, nothing is pure, right? It doesn't matter what these false teachers did with these foods, right? It doesn't matter if they were eating even the right foods under the old covenant because everything that they did is impure because they had an impure heart. And because of their defilement, their minds and their consciences have become defiled as well. And what Paul is getting at here is, is that these false teachers were so bad that doing more bad things just didn't even affect them. Their, their conscience, which was supposed to inform the mind on what was wrong, right, was completely sold to the devil, right? False teachings, lazy practices, lying tendencies, these things didn't even affect them anymore because they were so sinful, I think is what Paul's getting at here. Right? These false teachers have condemned themselves by their character. But secondly, they've, def they've condemned themselves by their conduct. Verse 16, these false teachers, yeah, they professed to know God, but they denied him by their works. Notice here that the true test of godliness is not what you say, but what you do. These false teachers, they could talk the talk, but they couldn't walk the walk, Right? Just like my soccer team, my freshman year of high school, right? We could say we were good, but none of that mattered if our actions didn't line up. Paul's addressing false teachers here, but I think this definitely bears an application for us. Where is the point in your life that there is, and I'm being careful about how I say this, right? There is a false teacher in you. Where there is still sin in you, in other terms. Where we profess to know God, but we deny him by our works in a certain area, right? Where do we need to be convicted of talking the talk, but not walking the walk, just like these false teachers? But Paul continues by saying that these false teachers are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This idea of being detestable is being loathsome, causing horror or disgust because of their hypocrisy, right? Nobody wants to hang around these guys. 
Secondly, they were disobedient, which we already talked about. They, they didn't listen to the authority of God's word. But lastly, they were unfit for good works. They disqualified themselves, in other words, towards good gospel ministry, which is the opposite of what we seek to do at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. But notice here that these false teachers disqualified themselves, and we need to realize that. So in conclusion today, let's review a little bit. Our big idea for this morning was that responding to false teachers is needed for effective ministry. But what does that look like? Well, we looked, like, we looked at in verse 10 how false teachers exist, which is why we need pastors. We looked at in point two that false teachers cause disruption, which is why we must silence them. And in point three, we looked at that false teachers need Jesus. They need to respond to the gospel, which is why we must rebuke them. And brothers and sisters, we've talked a lot about false teachings this morning, but what is the true teaching that we believe in? Well, here it is. It's the gospel. It's that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And because God was perfect, because God was holy, everything he created was perfect as well. And in God's perfection and his holiness and his righteousness, he had a standard. And Adam and Eve failed to achieve it, and so do we fail to achieve it each and every day. And throughout all of the Old Testament, the people of God are looking for their Messiah. But the good news is that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ steps on the scene. And he lives the life that we were supposed to live, but he also died the death that we deserve to die. And when he was on this earth, he said that there is an opportunity for salvation. Paul summarizes that gospel call in Romans 10, 13 by saying that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The way in which we are saved, don't listen to the false gospels of this day that tell you that you can merit your own salvation. The way in which you are saved is repenting and believing in the gospel and beating your breast and realizing that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. That Jesus Christ's life, his death and his resurrection, his conquering the grave in his resurrection, he has atoned for we could not atone for ourselves. And if you have not believed in that story this morning, that is the true gospel that we preach, that is the true gospel that is laid out in Scripture. And if you are believing in any other false gospel, I encourage you to repent of that and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. But for those of you who have already done that, let us recap our application for this morning. Firstly, realize your need for pastors. I've talked about that this morning, but don't forget that you need someone to shepherd you. Secondly, pray for your pastors. Every single morning, you need to be praying for Clay, for Jeff, and for Doug. Thirdly, you need to pray that false teachers know the Lord. When you see somebody in your workplace, when you see somebody in the world that are trying to destroy the church, you need to start by praying for them, that they might know the Lord. And after that, silencing them and rebuking them, right? This takes place in the church, but I think it can also take place in our world as we seek to evangelize those who do not know the Lord. But lastly, you must not only speak the gospel, but live the gospel. Let us not be like false teachers who profess to know God, but deny them, but, but, but deny him by their works. Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, false teachers will try to creep their way into these four walls. The question is this, 
are we ready to respond to them? And I pray that after this sermon, we are. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. Thank you for the opportunity that many of us in this room have taken hold of by your son, Jesus Christ, to live eternal life with you. But Lord, we, we sit here and we pray for those who do not know you. For those who, like those in the church of Crete 2,000 years ago, are still preaching a false gospel, still preaching a salvation by works. And Lord, we pray, first and foremost, that they would repent, that they would believe. For those who are captive to the teachings of Jehovah's Witness, universalism of Roman Catholicism, prosperity gospel, liberal theology, Lord, we pray that we might witness to them, that they might know you just as we have come to know you. Not because of us, but because of Christ in us.